Uh, we are on the Acts of the Saints, um, which is detailed in the book of Acts. This is part five. All right. Coming off the heels of understanding the priestly order of Melchizedek when we studied the book of Hebrews. Uh, we understand a little bit about priesthood um, from the Levites when they sacrificed goats and sheep and lambs. But there was another priesthood that predated the Levites one that all the patriarchs tied into, um, and that was the, the priestly order of Melchizedek, where they were priest, prophet, and king. And that was a paramount um, priestly order to understand because Christ then comes uh, after that order, according to scripture. Uh, he comes to be the king, the priest, and the prophet all in one person. Throughout Israel's history, that level of authority was disseminated between three different groups, the priest, the king, and then the prophets. But at one point, prior to some of the secularism that hit Israel, it was always one person that all of those offices were held by. Um, and so when Christ comes back, uh, Paul writes that he is coming after the order of Melchizedek, where he's going to be prophet, priest, and king again, and this is all going to be in him. Now, one of the ways that sacrifices were done within this priestly order wasn't with sheep, goats, and lambs, but rather it was a, uh, a wine and bread covenant that was taken, um, and then a tenth or a tithe was given. Uh, and so when Christ comes on the Passover supper and he breaks bread and drinks wine, and he tells them that this is the New Testament um, in, in my blood and my body, take this and do this remembrance of me, he is giving us the, the priestly covenant to say, now you will operate as a royal priesthood on the earth. Um, and many Christians understand these churchy words, but they don't really know what it means. Um, so we discussed on our last series exactly what this stuff means, right? But now we don't know what to do. We have a better understanding of, of a priestly order, um, what it means to operate in a priestly manner to serve God and to serve others and getting to God. But we may not be very clear on what that means in actuality. How do you live it every day? And so those actions are discussed in the book of Acts. All right, so we're on part five of our study of the books of, of the book of Acts. And last week was part four, and it was it's God or nothing. When we were really challenged about how much of everything else we want, and it's really not God. Amen. Amen. Um, how we enjoy lying to ourselves and living that lie. Hello, somebody. How we can see God. <coughs> um, uh, but don't necessarily want to do what he wants us to do. How we have um, the grace of God given to us is not necessarily favor, you know, like, oh, all good things happen to you. But rather, grace is the ability to do well, to do a hard thing very well. And that is grace. It, it can be surmised as favor, but I think that short changes the concept that the Bible had intended for grace. Grace is given, in order to think of the word graceful, to do something that is very difficult and you make it look easy. That is grace. And we're going to see that Christians are supposed to be act in the very, under the grace of God, where we do things that seem impossible, insurmountable, and we make it look easy. Hello, somebody. The other day, my family came by to visit and we decided to go to the pool. I know it was pretty off the charts for me <laughs> on a Saturday, but nevertheless. <laughs> um, and they bought some floaties, and I saw them struggle to blow up these floaties, and I tried to explain to them, I have really good lung capacity. 
I could blow those up for you in an instant. No, 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 we got it. 30 minutes later, they're still working on the same floaty. So eventually they get halfway, I mean, most of the way done with this big floaty. And I say, do you want me to finish it? And I finish it in two seconds, like <laughs> done, right? So they're thinking, oh, we finished most of it for her. We just got it set up, no big deal. So then they run out and get more floaties, all right, because we didn't have enough. And so I say, I'll blow these up, all right? Sister Sierra says, I will help, all right? Elijah, get one of these floaties, help too. I said, I don't know if you want to, I can do it. I can do it quickly. They're like, no, 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 we'll help. We'll help. My cousin Shariah, I help blow them up too. Okay. So we start blowing up floaties. My floaty is blown up, I would say, in less than five minutes, all right? They worked on their floaty for at least 25 minutes a piece blowing these things up. And I tried to explain to them, I make it look easy. Hello, somebody. Y'all don't want to help me preach today. You could see me do something, and since you believe that you understand the mechanics of it, you understand, and you know that you have the same mechanisms in yourself, you can see the ease that I carried in, and you go, you know what? I could do that same thing, because I got a mouth, and I got lungs, and blah, 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 blah. But what you don't have is the history of training, of deep breathing over and over and over and over again, over and over. You don't have the history of working out and running and breathing and singing and preaching and breathing. You don't had that history hello somebody so while we may have the same things and it is possible you could have the ability later you have not put in the time and effort now to develop the ease that you when you do it it looks real hard you was looking like it is difficult it is a struggle Everybody sees it on your face nobody wants to do it people begin to contemplate is it even worth it Oh, come on, y'all don't want to help me preach today. I don't know where we're going, so you might as well enjoy the ride, okay? All I got is this one title and a bunch of verses. I don't even know what it's going to all mean, okay? So we on this journey together. Hello, somebody. But that's, what, that's the truth. Some of you have no grace in your life, and you make Christianity look so hard that nobody wants to do it. Oh, you can't go to the club no more. Do you really want to go to the club? Okay, go. Go, go, go. You get all dressed up, shirts all short, all skirt, and I mean skirt all short, and your you, your muscles all out. I don't know how y'all go to the club these days. I mean, pretty much, I see you in bathing suits with a sheer cover over the top. I think that's the, the running style. It's, don't try to act like y'all don't know. I don't know what you mean. I don't even. Uh, what? How do, Pastor, I have never seen such outfits. I who who would know? Who would know what they wear? These youngsters these days. So go, you go out to the club, you get all hot and sweaty, you spend money on drinks that you don't have money for, you spend for parking, your feet hurt, you're hot, you're tired, hello somebody. Then you're a little inebriated, having some results in your life that you wish you did not have, hello somebody. Long, some of you even come back with long lasting effects in your life, hello somebody. Oh, but you had such a good time, didn't you? But when the pastor say, don't you wanna just have brunch, sit down and watch TV, maybe read a little scripture, sing a little song, I'm bored, I don't understand. Oh, you, you ain't got no grace in your life you can't fathom why my peaceful existence is somehow comforting while you are out here trying to shuck and jive with stuff that you has been too old to do the truth of this matter is you end up craving to do stuff that you've already recognized does not fit where you want to go in life 
because where you want to go in life, it looks hard. Hello, somebody. And it is, but you should be under grace. Y'all don't want to play fair today. It is hard. It is difficult. It is nearly impossible to take somebody that used to sin every day of their lives and then say, don't sin no more. It is very challenging, but God. And the issue here is you don't want to rely on him. You don't want to depend on him. You want to be made perfect in of your own intentions. Because you know where he's going to take you in order to perfect you, you're not going to want to go. You don't want to move. You don't want to go through that pain. You don't want to deal with that situation. You don't want to cut that off. You don't want to change that job. You don't want to go without no money. You don't want to deal with that sickness. You don't want to be no, no, life, no laugh, laughing stock of nobody. You know where he wants to take you, and you just don't want to go. So you say it's too hard. You come from under his grace, and you go back to a lifestyle that never fit you in the first place. I know it didn't because you came to church. The only reason y'all is here is because that lifestyle did not fit you. You be out there going, I don't know about this. I, I mean, it, but you know, then I get hungover, you know, then I done popped out these babies. I don't even know where these kids came from. And then, you know, now my job, look at my money, look at my bank account, man. Then I got to pray, ask God to help me with a bill. Should I even ask him to help me with the bill? It was my stupid stuff that spent the money. You know, you, and you just have all these conglomerate of problems. And you feel hopeless that there's any help. Because no one wants to hear your sorry excuses for making bad decisions. So then you feel this weight that you have to handle yourself by yourself. And now you start to feel lonely and alone. Hello, somebody. And that the weight of the world is on you. Hello. Now, now, all of a sudden, you have become somebody you never really wanted to be. And then you look at some sweet Christian who has such a simple life and just simply blessed. And you be like, well, what is wrong with me? It started years ago. When you decided to live a certain way, uh, that is our topic for today as we study the Acts of the Saints, part five, the habit of resisting the Holy Spirit. In the Acts of the Saints series, we're on part five, the habit of resisting the Holy Spirit. Some of us, for some of us make this a habit. Sheena, I'm about to use you as an example. Thank you so much. On last Sunday, I preached how easy it is for you guys to come in and under the anointing, you feel like I'm about to live this holy life with God. I'm about to press in. You come to the altar. You tell the Lord, I am ready for change in my life. This is a new beginning for me. And I told you on last Sunday, then you leave right after church and you go right back to your secular thoughts. If this did not happen for Sheena, I mean, it was so clear that, that it was so overwhelming to her that she had to tell it to me. Pastor, I want to go out in them streets. I was like, well, go. Because what you ain't going to find from me is I'm not going to get you to be locked up in a lifestyle that you don't even decide that you really want. I'm not your mama. Nope, I'm your spiritual mother, not your physical mother. Do you understand what that means? Your physical mother will put you, ground you, and put you in the house and dictate whether you ate and slept. I can't do none of that. Hello? All I do is look at you and go, so you want to be out in them streets? Well, go ahead. Because at this point, you know what's out there. Y'all ain't children. 
You know, you got living, breathing consequences. Hello, somebody. Of all the money you lost, all the bad relationships you got into, all the heartbreak, all the foolishness. You got real life examples of what being out in them streets did to you. And if you still want to go, then can't nobody stop you. Because a hard head makes a and apparently you ain't you ain't hard, you ain't soft enough. So go on back out there. Keep going, keep going, go on, go on. Pastor, you ain't gonna tell me to stop for what? So you can hate me? These are your choices. You wanna go? Go. I'll politely remind you, you know, hey, you wanna evaluate why you wanna go out there in them streets? You wanna think about that maybe before you go? But some of us just want me to lock you down, make it a rule. That's not what God is about. If he has to beat you to love him, it's not love. He wants you to choose to love him. Do you understand? Want to be where he is. Want to be in the environment that he likes. You think God loved the, the, the club environment? He loved the weed environment. He must love when you get a little loopy, a little slow. Huh? He must love it. He must love the alcohol environment where you get loose with your tongue. Your inhibitions are lowered, which is really saying you have no control. He must love when you say whatever's on your mind without wisdom or forethought or compassion or empathy. He must love that environment. He must love when you are be, be just overwhelmed by negativity, stress, and worry. He must love the idea that you're walking in a room and everybody is imagining you naked because you're practically there anyway. That must be the environment he enjoys. Because if it's not the environment he enjoys, then why do you enjoy being there? I'm just being honest. When you love somebody, you like being where they are. Hello, somebody. Now, God is in these places, but I don't know if this is his most pristine place to, to visit. There are places I go I prefer not to go, like the DMV, the post office, the nail salon. I hate going to the nail salon. If it was not some type of social situation where y'all didn't come to me and say, Pastor, your nails need to be done, then I wouldn't even go. Because you sit there for two hours, chained as Sally and Kelly and Brittany Wong end up locking your feet and your hands in these contraptions for polishing. These are places I prefer not to go. Filled with fumes, spending an outrageous amount of money for something that's gonna grow and break in a matter of weeks. Just to say that I am dignified and well-groomed these are places that I go that I prefer not to go. I wonder if the father has places that he is that he prefers not to be. And I wonder if you create these environments or usher him into these environments. Hello, hello, somebody. And situations that he prefers, conversations he prefers. I've been at, if you sometimes, I could be at a table with some of the saints and they start a conversation and I am stuck between two, I used to say two mediocre conversations. Neither one, the one on my left ain't no good and the one on my right ain't no good conversation and I'm stuck. I just drift off in the distance thinking, man, I wish this was a better conversation choice for me. I'm there, but I really prefer it was a topic that I actually enjoyed. Hello, somebody. 
Don't get the table full of praise and worship team. All they want to do is sing and talk about songs. Do you know who sing this? Do you know who sang that? Do you know did this sound come from this? And you just just Do you know who sings this? No, I don't. I don't know who sings this. What about this? You know this one. You go look, 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 look. Go, lee, 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 lee. You know that one. No, I, I don't know that one. But pastor, that's a good one because you know he be like, la, 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 la. come on, let's play that game. I say all this to say that there are times that we can bring the father into situations that I don't think he prefers. In actuality, he might try to tap you and tell you that I would prefer another environment or another situation. I prefer that you have different thoughts and different feelings. And while you claim you would also like that, you don't do the effort of actually changing that thought. You say, I wish I didn't think like that, but then you don't think about anything else. Hello? You know, if you tell yourself, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look, what are you going to do? The idea is not focusing on what you don't like, but to think about something differently, and you refuse. Then it becomes a whole emotional, I'm preaching to somebody in this house today, it becomes a whole emotional fiasco about why you can't stop, and why can't, why do I always feel this way, and why can't I let this go? And I'm thinking because you keep concentrating on that same thing over and over and over again. It's very simple. What comes in is what goes out. You want to think about something different, you want to feel different, then think differently. But all you do is exchange thinking bad for being angry that you think bad. Being emotional about what you can't stop. But it's still the same, it's still in the same category. I wish I didn't have to eat apples. Then over here, I wonder why I always gotta eat apples. I wonder what's wrong with me about eating apples. You didn't change the category at all. I wonder why I always got to make me break it more simple for you. Why I always attract bad people? Why I got to be in a bad relationship? Why can't I stop sleeping around? What's wrong with me? Why can't this ever work for me? Why can't I seem to let this go? I haven't seen you change none of these thoughts. You're in the same area with the same thoughts. Why don't you do something else? I'm trying to help somebody. You ain't got nothing else going on in your life but sex. You ain't got nothing else going on but trying to make money. You ain't got nothing. Come on, you ain't got nothing else more passionate in your life besides that. And, and if it's causing you problems, then stop thinking about it and do something else. I'm sorry. I'm preaching better than y'all acting today. The area of your problem that you cannot seem to fix has now encompassed all of your attention. And why, since you can't fix it. Maybe you should turn that over, surrender it to someone else, and you work on stuff that you can actually do something about. I can go to school. You can get a degree. You can go to work. I don't understand why I'm so upset. I'm going to call off today. You stupid. You upset about something, and you're going to call off, and you're upset about something you can't change. It seemed to me work is exactly what you need because then you won't have two problems, brokenness and what you can't change. Y'all just shoot yourselves in the foot. I'm preaching better y'all acting today. And I really believe that the Holy Spirit tries to lead us down these paths. But some of us have such a habit of resisting him that we don't even know why we resist. We just do it intrinsically and instinctively. There are times I'm trying to pull my dog 
to go with me in a certain direction. The same direction he really need because he's got a poo-poo. This is the way you need to go. But because I tug on him, and by nature, he is so apt that any time I tug on him to oppose me, that he opposes the very thing that he said he needs. The more God tugs on some of you to go in a certain direction, you're so, so habitually resisting him that when he tugs on you, you start resisting even more. You start coming up with more justifications as to why it's not that bad and why it's only this and why I only like that and it's only because. And all of a sudden, you just knee-jerk reaction to resist and you don't even know that he's actually taking you to the place that you said you wanted to go. Hello, somebody. If it don't make no sense to me, I'm like, I want to be holy this way. I want my life to, got to get my life together this way. I need to just really just, from now on, I need to be just concentrating on the Lord this way. You know, I need to be fired up this way. I don't know. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me think about it. Hold on, hold on. See, because I don't want to just do something just because. You don't want to just do something. You've been doing something just because. Now, all of a sudden, you don't want to do something just because on the good side. But you've been doing something just because it's a habit on the bad side for years. So what if you develop a habit uh, sporadically of doing good? You got a sporadic habit of doing bad, of rebelling. I don't just want to do it and it don't stick. Okay. But the more you do it, the more it stick. That is obvious with the other crap in your life. So you try this, you fail. Try it again. Try it again, you fail. Try it again. Try it again, you fail. Try it again. Try it again, you fail. Try it again. Try it again. Before you know it, you will have the habit of doing well. Hello, somebody. And now you just instinctively. Do well. And somebody has to say, hold on, baby. That's a little too much. That's a good habit to have. Hey, you do good too much. Versus the habit of you was always down bad. You was always lying. You was always late. You was always procrastinating. Come on, somebody. You was always eating. You was always laying down. You was always sitting down. You was always greedy. You, that's, you was always sleeping around. You was always on your phone. You was always not reading. It's, it's some other you was always. And then when somebody tries to get you to develop new habits in a different direction, you want to resist it because you really have believed the lie that your good intentions are going to amount to anything. And somehow that your feelings are boss. When I feel it, that's when I'll do it. How many times have you used that lie? And the only thing you're doing is perpetuating a habit. Hello? I'm, I'm going to keep preaching on this point because I don't know who need it, but I'm going to just keep digging into this on this, huh? Those of us that use the excuse that until it feels a certain way in my heart, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it out of obligation, as if that's a bad word, right? I don't want to do it until I feel it. Now, this is a good thing, right? But I don't want to do this good thing until I really feel on the inside that, that when I feel, then, then I'll know. The only thing you're doing is perpetuating a, a bad habit because now it's your feelings that dictate everything. It's your feelings that make you do bad, and now it's your feelings that can only generate good out of you. But sometimes we should just do good because it's what? It's right to do. 
I ain't got to have no unction to do good. It's not necessary. If anything, I need an unction when the Holy Spirit told me, stop. That's good, but that's not what I want. That's not godly. The fact that you need an unction to do good, there's something wrong with you. Because even if you don't want to do it, you do it. I was talking to my baby cousins, <clears throat> Aunt Sharon's god uh, grandchildren. They were talking about the difficulty of spending the night at her bedside while she's in the hospital. And um, some of the parents were asking me, well, should we make them? And I said, probably. I said, probably. They're not going to be very good at, at it. I said, it's all right. But you should make them. They said, why? I said, well, for the most part, nobody wants to do it. But when you do it, you're so glad that you did. Hello, somebody. There are things that on the onset, nobody wants to spend a night at a hospital. The beeping, the noise, the nurses coming in and out. You can't get any sleep. The chairs are completely uncomfortable. It's always freezing. It's always cold. Nobody wants to do that. But when you start it, you're so glad that you did. See, if you don't teach people that that's a real thing, that just because you don't feel inspired to do it. And then he got the audacity to make this some kind of drama situation. I wonder why I don't feel that way. Maybe it's because of my, my childhood and maybe it's because all of my life I never had. And maybe it's, oh my God, now we just have a whole narrative about why you can't do something that nobody really would want to do, but you should do it anyway. I'm preaching better than somebody's acting today. You got to come up with the reasons for it. All right, let me move on. That's, I don't know why I'm way over there. Let me come back. In essence, we all have a habit of resisting the Holy Spirit. And there are points in our life where this habit is extremely problematic. It becomes very difficult when God wants to do something unique in your life and your bad habit of resisting him takes you out the running. He wants to do something peculiar, something unique, something that you haven't seen in the other parts of your life, but you've always wished could be present. Something that you could only imagine and then tell yourself, nah, that's for other people, that ain't for me. Hello, somebody. Stuff like that that he really wants to do, but your habit of resisting him begins to take you out the running. Now, what I would like to draw to your attention to those of you that I'm talking to, that I'm preaching to, that your habit of resisting him isn't that you don't know if it's him. That's not the problem. The habit becomes because you resist him in this area, you have no hope. You feel no purpose. And because you feel no purpose, you are prone to sinful mistakes. You know how you do. What's the point? What's the reason for all of this? And it all stemmed because of one area that you resisted him on. Come on, search your files. Search your life. You resisted God in one area, and then this bred a whole bunch of what is the point? What is the reason? Why is it any matter? And then it just starts seeping out into other areas of your life. And then rather than correcting that area of resistance, you go further in the other direction. Further down the rabbit hole. Hello, somebody. Further down the emotional turmoil of it all. So now the whole situation of something very simple that the Holy Spirit asks you to do has become an entire drama fest and nothing gets done. Hello? Uh-huh. 
some people don't know how to break out of the habit. Let's look at Acts chapter 5. Picking up from last week, Acts chapter 5, verse 38 and 39, the disciples have met, have assembled. Um, the power of the Holy Spirit has fallen on them on the day of Pentecost. They're preaching and teaching. And as we learned on last week in, in, in chapter 5, They had decided, those who had land and houses, to sell and to give it all to the apostles, that the apostles can give it to those that were in need. And the church began to grow mightily, and people began to uh, come and become disciples. And of course, as we discussed on last week, there was a, a married couple that decided to lie. Um, and they really lied to the Holy Spirit. Because it wasn't the apostles that said, sell your stuff. It was something that God placed on the individual's hearts. And when God placed it on Ananias and Zephyr's heart, they then began to lie to the Holy Spirit and claim that they gave all the money when they kept, really kept apart for themselves. And when Peter finds this out, he says, why did you lie? If it was God that put this on your heart, not me. And it was God that told you what to do with it. And then you went back and justified how that's not necessary. Yeah. Come on, somebody. Yeah. And figure, oh, now, just go, because I know you've had situations like this, because I've had some in my life, where God will put you, put something on your heart to do. And you think later that that might be a bit much. So then you scale it back. Hello, somebody. So then you reduce what he told you to do. And so Peter then says, um, guys, you can't lie to God like that. Number one, you didn't generate this desire in of yourself. He did. He gave you this, that he might bless you. But you're so concerned about what you think a blessing is that you've missed out on the real blessing. You think the blessing is the money? No. You think the blessing is the house? You think the blessing is the provision? What you're about to miss out on is grace. You, you could have had the blessing of doing something hard and making it look easy. Oh, I mean, because think about it. When somebody sells a house and then gives all the money, don't we think that looks really hard? Yeah. And they do it with the greatest of ease. Yeah. Hello, somebody. You just missed out on your blessing of grace. Because when God sees that you have the type of heart that wants to serve him and serve him well, not begrudgingly, not, oh, let me go ahead and do this. Or, I don't want nobody talking about me. I don't want nobody thinking this, that, and the other. But you say, I want to do something for God, and I want to do it well, and I want it to look good, and I want to bless people. And I don't, you, know, you really, really put it all out there? What do you think he's going to feel? When you say, no, God, and he see you over there going, ugh, struck, ugh. he's like, let me get that for you. No, 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 I got it. It's not the problem at all. He knows that it was a hard thing, but he sees how you intend on it looking as if it's not hard at all. Who wouldn't love somebody like that? So what you're really missing out on is the idea that God could have favored you. You could have been the apple of his eye. You wanted to do something for him, and you didn't want him to know. You didn't want to complain about it. You didn't want to struggle with it. You just wanted to bless his socks up. Instead of looking like it was somehow an impossible feat. It's too hard for me. 
And can't you just lift it? I used to get on Jewel all the time. I said, Jewel, you always are so sad when you don't do something right. But I don't see you take the steps necessary to get it right. So it makes me feel like you don't really care until you get caught. You don't care that it's wrong until you got to face the consequences of wrong. But before the consequences are wrong, you didn't care enough to perfect it. Hello, somebody. It's not just her, it's all of us. I'm a perfectionist. I am. When I do something, I like to do it well. I like to think about it, mull over it, plan it. Sister Keisha, as we, we talked about, I like to think about it for a minute. Everybody knows my thinking stance. What is she doing? She's just standing there. She's thinking. She's planning it in her head. She's thinking. Let her do her thing. Because I want to do it well. It's not my emotions that propel me, but it's the thought that causes me to endure the boring aspect of thinking. There's no joy in just sitting thinking. Everybody likes to do. Nobody, everybody loves to eat. Nobody likes to prepare. People love to cook, but I can tell you people don't like to prepare. I, was, I had to work at the banquet chef, as a banquet chef one day. Banquets work great with massive amounts of food. But you know how you get that massive amounts of food? Somebody has to prepare and weigh every little thing. Weigh it, scale it, count it, and put, put in little baggies with little stickers on them for the date. And it's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Kitchens that you go to your lovely fast food restaurants and all your little sit-down restaurants, they only work because somebody is in the back putting a sticker and weighing, come on, Sister Harmony, tell them, weighing, come on, Minister Hudson, weighing every single thing so that the people on the front line can have the ease of making it very quickly. Hello, somebody. Nobody likes this background job. It's where you go when you've done something bad in the kitchen. <laughs> Nobody likes that, but that is necessary. And there are times that we resist the Holy Spirit in so many areas of our life that we think emotionalism is the equivalent of good intentions. And all you did was make yourself so emotional that you didn't have the time to think. Because you knew if you slowed down. Don't try to say that's faith. That's not faith. The Bible says be anxious for nothing. If you slowed down, you knew you would have found some holes in this idea. You know, I said, well, what'd you do that? Well, I ain't thought that far ahead. Then why have you moved? If you haven't thought that far ahead, why are you moving? Is there a clock that I don't know about? What's the rush? I don't know. I just feel like I need to do. But you ain't thought. The God-gated brain, you ain't want to think down the road. Hello? So you gave him your number. Why? You asked him for hers. Why? You messaged him on Facebook. Why? You responded to his text. Why? See, this is the part I don't understand. I didn't think about that. I was just going with it. See, that's, see, that's, that's, that's your issue. Because I have to think about these things. Hey, can I get your number? Ma'am, did you hear me? I did.
Only thing this does is make him want to work harder for us. Well, maybe can I say, you know, maybe I don't have to get your number. You know, I just now he got more conversation and he's just talking, talking. I'm just thinking. He's just talking. I'm just a thinking. No, I can't. I'm in a relationship. I got to go. <laughs> what he don't know is I just evaluated whether you were even worthy of this conversation at this point. But some of us can be so desperate for attention, for a possibility that we don't even weigh whether this should even be happening in our lives in this time, in this season, or with that person. And so you get yourself all involved in this situation. Hello, somebody. And you don't know how you got yourself involved in this situation. And then some of us go even further after being involved. We don't know how to get out, so we just keep going. And then we keep going, and then we have consequences and repercussions. Hello, somebody. And then we get the consequences and repercussions. We be like, how did this happen? It didn't happen on the, when this day. It happened a long time ago when you decided to act without thinking. You decided to move without praying. You decided to just go by your instincts and your emotions as if somehow that is God. Because you have a habit of resisting the Holy Spirit and leaning more towards your emotions. Your emotions become king. It sits on the throne. I feel, I feel, I feel. I think, I think, I think. Versus the Holy Spirit and really listening to what he's telling you to do. How he's leading you. And a preacher can preach all day. And you can hear under the anointing exactly where the Holy Spirit is trying to take you. And you resist. Some of you try to do it right now. If I wasn't preaching on it, you'd be resisting. You came to church going, now I want some change in my life, but I don't know about how much change. So if I start talking about how much change, now all of a sudden you already started putting up barriers to what you will not adjust. I will not adjust this, this, or this. Now everything else, Pastor, you can preach on that, and I will really hope God will do this. But these areas right here, no, we're going to just keep them right now. And there ain't nothing you're going to say that's going to get me all emotional. This is the thing, because I don't want to get emotional when I know I really don't want to change it. You might as well get emotional because you ain't going to change nothing. Because you are an emotional being and not rational. A rationally thinking Christian knows it is better to obey God. But you're not that. You're an emotional thinking Christian. So you better use your emotion. Come to the altar every time. Every, I'm emotional. I'm going to the altar. I'm going to slip up tomorrow, but I'm going today. That's you because you are led by your emotions. So I might as well use them for something good versus the habits that produce something bad. Oh, you want to use all the emotion to do sin, but you don't want to use the emotion to do right. I am preaching. Y'all better say amen. Because I, I know people in here that are doing this. You'll let your emotions drive you to sin, to be disobedient, to not be in the will of God, but then you won't allow your emotion to drive you to the altar. You won't allow your emotion to, to stand up and shout hallelujah. You won't let your emotions say amen and, and do it, Lord, because you don't know if you can maintain it. You can't maintain none of it. And since you're so emotional, you might as well use it to your advantage. That's what preaching is for. For to get y'all riled up, motivated to do something. You're probably going to fail tomorrow, but at least that's one step closer. Huh? Hello? Giving you conflict, your holy life, and conflict with your secular life. Somebody got to put conflict there. This one of them churches that does it. Not every church gives you conflict. 
They try to bridge in all the secularism that you could possibly have and tell you it's okay. This one of them churches, not the only, but one of many, that actually gives you conflict, makes you go into them secular situations going, I don't even know. Is this the line? Have I, have I crossed the line? And somebody makes you think and slow down. And not for sin's sake, but for you's sake. Not about the rules, but what is more expedient for you. The Bible says all things are lawful, but what? Not expedient. That means even though it's not a sin in the Bible, is it good for you? It may not be good for you. Such and such may be able to take a couple drinks. Not you. Because that starts breeding in all kinds of other mindsets. Now you want to have a hot girl summer and a hoochie father short contest. I don't know what y'all be doing, right? You know how you do. Some people can listen to secular music, but maybe not you. Because you listen to secular music, then you want a boyfriend, then you want a girlfriend, then you need somebody to hold you, then you want to smoke some weed, then you want to get a couple of drinks, then you just, uh, what, what? The habit of the pastor, the, the job of the pastor, is to confront you, not about sin, because you know that already. Amen. It's to confront you about habits of resisting the Holy Spirit that don't benefit you personally. That's what it's good to have a personal shepherd. Hey, that's not good for you. Here you go comparing your life to everybody else on TikTok. That damn. That not you. You have a different personality type. Well, other Christians can, mm-hmm. And when you try to do that as a Christian, you fail. You lose something. Maybe you shouldn't. The idea is you want what you want so bad that you cannot handle the fact that God has not has said no to you about that in your life. Oh, I'm preaching, Betty, y'all acting. That is the whole shebang of all of Israel's issues is that they wanted what they wanted and could not handle the idea that God told them no. Okay, I'm going to prove it to you. All right, let's move on. I said Acts chapter 5, right? So uh, people were giving, and Ananias and Zephyr lied um, and said they gave it all. They, they lied to the Holy Spirit. They kept back some of it for themselves and um, dropped dead. Peter confronted him on it, and the husband took his last breath. Later, his wife came in, agreed with the lie, and then she dropped dead. After that, everybody was shook. People were coming to the faith, but nobody wanted to be an apostle. Everybody was really upset and, and had a great fear of God, and over the work came over across the entire church. Um, and moving past that point, uh, the church began to grow. Um, now there's a, a healthy respect for the things of God. When people see bad consequences happen to people that should have been doing good, fear of God hits. Hits the house. Have anybody ever seen that here where you know somebody did something that wasn't in line with the Holy Spirit? And then you saw bad consequences come from that, and you go, ooh, God ain't nothing to play with. You would think that we would prefer a God that lets us get away with everything and anything, but just like children, that's not what we prefer. We prefer discipline and structure. Because when it comes to discipline and structure, it makes us feel safe. I understand where I can go and can't go. What will work, what doesn't work. 
is the first way that we as humans understand who loves us. Not based off of who gives us stuff, but based off of who gives us structure. Pattern. Calls us to the table on our mess. Most of you have chosen me as your pastor because I have looked past your sweetness and brought you to the table on your mess. Now, the ones that ain't sweet, they already know. And they can't understand how they, with their abrasive personalities, are lumped up with these non-abrasive folk and how we can pastor both. Hello, somebody. Because pastor finds the aggressive and the passive-aggressive equally. And she challenges those passive-aggressive behaviors just like she challenges those aggressive behaviors. Does that make sense? And most of you love the idea that someone challenges me when I am crossing the line because then I know that I am safe. Instinctively, just like children, if you let me cross the line, then I know that you don't mind me being unsafe. So they can cut up and act up, but they know when it comes down to it, I am safe there. Yes? So they dropped dead, and great fear came over the entire church. This was last week, and it grew. It multiplied and grew, and everyone continued to share. People keep get, kept giving, selling their properties and houses and sharing and distributing it as needed. Yes? Uh, eventually, Peter and John were imprisoned, threatened, prayed for the power of God, received the power of God to continue to do well, went back to the tavern, to the temple, preached some more, taught some more, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were getting, coming to Christ and getting saved. And this was going well, and then they were imprisoned again. So let's pick up in Acts chapter 5, 38. Another trial is happening. And in verse 38, it says, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. This is a powerful statement uh, stated by the, the temple leaders of, uh, of this day. Uh, they wanted to put an end to Peter and John's preaching because not only were they preaching that the Jews themselves killed the Messiah, they were also preaching that God wants you to repent and come and follow the Messiah. The Messiah that died, was buried, rose from the dead and ascended and is now in heaven, they want you to now be a believer of that and serve him. And this was threatening uh, the leaders of the day because people were doing it. They saw the signs, the miracles, and they were saying, oh, this is to, to Christ? Now, it was one thing when Christ was performing these miracles himself. Now he's not here, and you are performing these miracles in his name? He must have got up because this stuff is still working. He, he, he must be working in you because it's still happening. Whatever he had, he must have put that in you. So thousands upon thousands of people were coming to God going, this, this, is, this is ridiculous. I mean, the man was lame, man. He got up and he's walking. And it wasn't even Jesus. It was you. And you say you did it in his name. And it was working. That means his spirit is really like in y'all. Oh, this is legit. Oh, this is for real. Oh, this is new stuff right here. Oh, 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 this is, this is, this is, this thing's got legs. This is going somewhere. And people by the thousands were coming to Christianity. So, of course, the leaders didn't like it. They plotted to put it in, into an end again. And as they plotted to kill him, one of the leaders stood up and said, don't even worry about it. 
Their Messiah is dead. Their Savior is dead. Don't worry about it. It'll, it'll die out like all the other movements. This is pretty much the conversation. Every other person that proclaimed to be the Messiah and every other great movement that we've ever seen fizzled out. Fizzled out till there was nothing left. Hello, somebody. So I wouldn't even worry about it. But if by small chance, this is what they're thinking, it is God and he is the Messiah, not only will we have a problem because it's going to happen regardless. God is going to do whatever he wants to do. And so that means it won't be what you want. It will be what he wants. Not only is that going to happen, but the second problem is that you will be found to have fought against God. See, this is the issue that I have with, the, with people that can't understand God's sovereignty. You know those debates. Well, what difference does it make since God's going to do whatever he wants to do anyway? Or what does it matter since, since God's going to do whatever he wants to do in my life anyway? So why should I care since it's going to be whatever he wants anyway? The issue here is that you get to control whether you're fighting against God or fighting with God. And that is far more important of your intentions. Yes, it's true. What he wants will happen regardless of you. But do you really want to be found fighting against the move of God? Well, if that's what he wants, that's what's going to happen in my life anyway. Yeah, but should he drag you or should you be willing? Come on, y'all don't want to play fair today. Well, if that's what he wants, it's going to happen anyway. Yeah, but should he force it or should you be willingly going down that path with him? Does he have to drag you like he does his enemy or, do you, or can you choose to be used by God? Can you choose to go down this difficult path? You're arguing the wrong point. How God's sovereignty works is not the issue. The issue, since you're not sovereign, is will you go with him or resist him? Well, that's what God wants in my life. That's going to be what he wants. Yeah, but what are you doing? Yeah, we understand what he's doing. That whatever he does is going to happen. The question about your life is what are you doing? Are you with his will being used in that direction? Or is he constantly trying to pull and tug you to go on this and come on and please and oh and consequence and problem and come on and please. And you're, you're, you're the issue that is now working against what God is doing. He has to force you. I don't want to do it, but I know God wants me to do it. So I just do it. It's just a whole attitude about it. Your whole dis disposition, about your countenance has fallen, Cain. Come on, somebody. Now it's just this is, this is a problem. Looking at the will of God is then problematic in your life. Versus a joy to know it and a joy to follow in it. In the latter days, this, this is the heart of, of the believers that is necessary. Where we're going to see great amounts of people come into the household of faith and begin to push out those who were just lying in the first place. Because they're going to begin, in order for God to do what he wants to do, he always starts moving with, on the hearts of people to want what he wants, to accept what he wants. And this becomes the delineating line between those who are for God and against God. It's so easy to divide wheat from tares on the day of harvest. It's easy to separate sheep and goats. This becomes ever so easy because there are definite people that will constantly resist God to the point of fighting him. You don't initially start fighting God. Did you know that? Did you know that people that actually know God don't initially start fighting God? 
they start with resisting. That's why we're talking about the habit of resisting the Holy Spirit. It starts with resistance before it ever becomes on a fight or an attack. I'm going to prove it to you because Peter proves it to you in the book of Acts. So he says, you can't overthrow it lest you be found to fight against God. Verse 40. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So this is the second time they went before the court. And things have gotten more heated because now they got beat. Don't speak the name Jesus. And just to make it extra uh, paramount, we're going to beat you. See, earlier they just threatened them. And the disciples left and rejoiced. Now the stakes are getting higher. In order to continue to preach the name of Jesus, it's going to cost you more. Y'all don't want to help me preach today. See, this is the problem with our American church is that when we have to follow God and it costs us more, we can barely handle the entry-level threat. Come on, somebody. We can barely handle the threat of losing our job. We can barely handle the threat of being alone. We can barely handle the threat of having no kids, the threat of not getting married, the threat of not making a lot of money, the threat of sickness. We can, if we can barely handle the threat of these things, then when we actually have to endure them, Hello, somebody. Mm -hmm. When we actually have to endure it, we can't. So now, in order to obey God, to preach in the temple who Christ is as the Messiah, to do what disciples were commissioned to do, it's going to cost them even more. The more you do it, the more we will arrest you and beat you. It's tough. Hello, somebody. The issue here is that the leaders of the temple had hoped that this threat plus this beating, this added pressure, and people don't recognize that that's what Satan is, is trying to do. He knows the will of God is going to be done, but he wants to make sure you're not included in that. God's will will, will be done, but will it be by you? Or against you. So all of us, so here, the disciples are, are, are being brought before the, the council. The council threatens them with beatings, beats them, and tells them, don't worry about it. This is enough pressure. This is all going to fizzle out. Because nobody's going to keep wanting to come to any religious movement when all you get is beat down. Hello? Now, have you ever heard someone say, I don't know why I came to Christianity if this is what my life is going to be like? Have you ever said that to yourself? That what's the point? If, if you're going to make me live like this, then why did I even get saved? If you're not going to let me have this, if you let this happen, I'm like, the people, we think these things. Right? All that's really happened is the stakes have gotten a little higher to serve God, and you are not able. Because you're still thinking that this is your, your only life. And you're thinking you're about to lose out on your only life 
My only life is going to be miserable because I don't have any kids. My only life is going to be miserable because I'm not married. My only life is going to be miserable if you're going to just let me live without ever being in love and not ever having my true love and not ever having any money and not ever having, I won't ever be cute and I won't ever be handsome and I won't, oh my God. You know that temper tantrum you, you pull up about what's not right in your life and what you uh, believe, and to some extent, Christianity has cost? It was different when you came to God and you didn't get no cost. Everything was given to you. You got delivered. You got free. People try to help you. Hello, somebody. Everybody wants to help you, teach you, give you money, help you with this, help you with that. Oh, you were Christianity in the beginning was just a give fest to you. Everybody gave everything, their time, their effort, their energy, their money, their counsel, their wisdom, everything. Give, 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 give. And then all of a sudden, it seemed like things started to turn and it started costing you stuff. It might cost you a relationship. Well, if he's going to make it like that, then I don't even know what's the point. Hmm, interesting. It might cost you a certain future dream you had. Interesting. These are the threats of what you feel Christianity could cost you. And at the threat of it, hello, somebody, you already out the running. Nobody wants to get sick. Now you're going, uh they're going to beat us. You are actually doing what the leaders thought would happen. That when people saw what it cost, that nobody would want to follow God. Come on, somebody. But let me tell you the truth about this thing. When people see what it costs, come on, somebody, that it might cost you marriage. It might cost you children. It might cost you money. It might cost you health. Come on. When they really see it, it doesn't push them away. It draws them closer to the reality of who God really is. Because don't nobody do this for nothing. Everybody serve a God that gives them things freely. But who will serve a God when it starts to cost? In order to serve a God that costs you something, you have to know that he really is good. You have to believe that this is not your only life, that you will live again. You have to believe that he loves you, that he will forgive you. And everything that we preach about the gospel becomes fully manifested because somebody decided I will serve him at all costs. Half of you are in this house being led by a single woman with no kids, never been married, because in this vessel you see that the God must be real. Some of you have seen my personal and private life, the loss of my mother, the pain of, raising, of starting a church, of being a woman starting a church, and said, you know what? God must be real because don't nobody go through all of this for nothing. Don't nobody sacrifice all of this for nothing. She's got to believe it and I've seen it. I've seen miracles at her hands by God. I've seen this at her hands by God. I've seen her life. Oh, this thing is real. That sacrifice caused you to believe more in God. The beatings, the pains, the sicknesses. You believe more. So when it's your turn, come on, saints, help me. Come on now, come on. So when it's your turn, come on now, come on. It's going to be your turn to give up a love. Come on, somebody. It's going to be your turn to give up a relationship of five. It's going to be your turn to give up a job. It's going to be your turn to give up some status. It's going to be your turn because somebody's going to threaten you, and then they're going to actually do it. And you're supposed to have grace. 
You're supposed to be under grace, where you lift something hard and you make it look easy. Where people go, yeah, I could do that. Sister Gabrielle used to trip me out because she would say, Pastor, I will see you do it. And then I'd be like, yeah, I could do it. And then I started to do it. And no. I didn't realize how hard it was to forgive. I didn't realize how hard it was to watch people go down the wrong path and love them nonetheless. I didn't realize how hard it was to stay up and study, how hard it was to read. I didn't realize how hard it was to juggle 50 million things at one time. I didn't realize how hard it was to be there for people that you love. I didn't realize how, and see, when you actually start doing it, then you realize how hard it is. But don't faint. Don't faint. You were called by God to be under his grace. He just wants to see if you want it. Do you want it? Most of the miracles I've seen, not most, all of the miracles I've seen God do in my life and through me to other people's lives is because I desperately wanted him to do this thing. Like I wanted that person to be well. I wanted that life to work out. I w and I mean, I wanted it from a deep place. You understand? He works with that because God is love. You're trying to get these monumental results, but you're not starting at the place that is called love. Where even if I have to struggle to do it, I want it so bad in their life that I'll struggle to do it. Even if they hate me while I'm doing it, I want it so bad, they're going to hate me, but they're going to love it when it's all said and done. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's, and then that all of a sudden, what does he do? He gives you grace. Because you're willing to do it when it's hard. Come on, somebody. So the grace of God says, well, let me make it look a little easier for you. Come on, y'all. Since you're willing to do it when it was difficult, let me come in and make it a little easier for you. But some of us are so lazy. Come on, somebody. Make it easy for me now. Make it easy right now. Oh, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. I just can't. It's become a colloquialism. I can't. I just can't. I never heard such a loser phrase become wrapped around so many people's tongues. I can't. Ooh, I just can't. Amen? Amen. Am, I, am I in the building today? I can't tell. Y'all can't, I don't really know. Christianity starts costing. Now, the issue here is, well, why would anybody sign up if it's going to cost them so many things in their lives? Because they earnestly believe the gospel that says this is not their only life. The part that I keep, you keep having a disconnect on is why would I want a miserable life? Number one, it won't be that miserable. It'll have challenges, but you'll be graced. And number two, this is not your only life. Satan keeps uh, deceiving you to make you forget or to feel that what he offers in this dying world is all that there is. So then you have this desperate death grip on everything about your life. YOLO. Everything is a YOLO for you. And it's not true for believers. So this challenges our faith. Come on and say amen. amen. And this is what I'm trying to tell you is you don't really believe what you say you believe. Everybody in here believed that chair would hold them. How do I know? You sat down. 
faith without works is dead. If you really believed that you will live again, then that will affect how you decide certain things about your current life. And you won't resist the Holy Spirit when it looks like he's taking you down paths that you prefer not to go. Because you know you will live again. Does that make sense? If I got a million dollars in the bank and somebody wants to waste a dollar, how resistant do you think I'm going to be? Give them a dollar. How resistant do you think I'm going to be? Risk a dollar. How resistant do you think I'll be? The issue is that in you, you've already concluded that there, this is all the life you get. And so you live every day when the Holy Spirit is trying to lead you down paths that you don't like, resisting that because you can't imagine how you could waste your life. Not recognizing that going down his path is the best thing you could have did with the only life you got. You only got one. And it's sin laden. Do you understand? I mean, it's like having a really beat up car. A real down bad hoopty, right? And somebody saves your life. And they don't have a car. And all they want is a car. It's wrong if you say, oh, my car is so crappy that I wouldn't want to give you that. Because intrinsically, you already know what? You just don't want to give me the car. Oh, you don't want this. It's too bad. It's not good enough for you. You don't even let them reject it. You just be like, no. Because you know this is really feeding the idea that you don't want to give up your car. Right? So all they want is a car. After saving your life and all you got is an old beat up car. What do you think you should do? Give them the old beat up car? You should give them the old beat up car. Should you give it begrudgingly? How should you give it? Willingly. Why? Because because of them you have more life to live. Am I right? You have more life to live, which means you can, in essence, eventually get another car. Maybe a beat up one like this one or maybe a better one. Who knows? The possibilities are yours primarily because this person saved your life. The possibilities are yours primarily because this person saved your life. You may not understand what heaven is. Y'all don't want to help me preach today. You may not understand how heaven works. You may not understand what's going to go in the afterlife. But I do know one thing. The possibilities are mine because he gave his life. I don't know how it all works, but I know I got hope that it that is something. It's better than death. It's better than Hades and hell. Right? So you should give the car. In essence, if you really believed that God has saved you and gives you new life, then you would have no problem giving this one up. This is the point I am targeting, and I know I keep repeating the same thing, but this is where your fear, your anxiety, all of your sinful natures, this is where they rest and reside in the deception that you only live once. Yeah. And Satan uses this to manipulate you. Amen? Amen? The truth of the matter is that when they thought this whole movement would die out because Christ had ascended to heaven, it didn't. It did not die out. It kept growing for thousands upon thousands of people. And now for over 2,000 years, the same movement that they thought would die out 
has never died out. I mean, just hear me out. Other religions have, have ebbed and flowed as well, right? But other religions are not persecuted to the same extent the enti their entire existence. They can be persecuted in a certain place at a certain time. But if you look at the history of Christianity, there is not one point in time where the body of Christ was not suffering death and persecution for existing. Every week we come in, we see the voice of the martyrs and some other people that are believing in God are dying and their kids are dying. And this, this has never ceased from happening, which means the beatings and the threats have continued for hundreds of thousands of thousands of, upon thousands of years. And it hasn't ceased the movement yet. Other religions are more peaceful, so nobody really has a problem with them, right? But something about Christianity rises things in, in the whole hearts of men, and it's always under persecution. Yes? Judaism, similar. Serving this God has always had an air of persecution and death to try to squeeze it out, Right? And it hasn't. And it hasn't been one point in history when people have not died to believe it. That's true, Pastor. And it still exists. Hello, somebody. That just made me so happy. <laughs> it is not your success that draws people to Christianity. That draws the secular. Success draws the secular. It is your holiness in God, your fortitude under great pressure, your determination to stay faithful to the Father under great loss is truly what disciples or disciplines people. It converts them. The grace that they see on your life and living, and living is hard, and you live it well, is what draws people to God. They see you struggling financially, struggling in your health, struggling with your singleness, and you act as if everything is okay, and you feel as if everything is okay, and everything will be okay. This makes them look and wonder, what is going on in your life? But some of us don't walk in the grace of God. We want everybody to see how hard and miserable we are serving God. Can't go nowhere, can't do nothing, can't, uh. What shame you bring to the house? Every time somebody comes to my home, no matter where I live, a feeling of peace covers them. <laughs> Strangers, new people, it doesn't matter. People that typically wouldn't fall asleep in a place that's not home. Somehow drift off to Napville, a little naparoo, a little nappy nappy, a little napsteroonie. Drift off. You don't really know how much you need peace in your life 
until you're confronted with the idea that you haven't been living peacefully. You begin to recognize my life in here is in turmoil. It's not my house. It's me. It's not my job. It's me. It's not the relationship. It's me. This anxious feeling I've been having has been in here all along. Uh, at this point, the disciples left after being beaten, and they counted themselves worthy to suffer the shame. Yes? Let's go on. Let's pick up at Acts chapter. We're in chapter 5. Let's go on, go on to um, Acts chapter 6. A couple of verses here, and we're going to go. I'm going to summarize a lot of things. Um, now, in those days, this is chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distri distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is, it, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom, may, uh, whom we may appoint over the bus this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Stop right there. So the Hellenists are Greek. Okay, it's, it's, it means the Greek. Okay, so in this day, you remember, Greece captured uh, Mesopotamia, Babylon. Do you remember that? All right, so Greece captured Babylon. Rome captured Greece. All right. You're like, Rome captured, whatever you about to say. <laughs> Rome captured Greece, okay? Um, the children of Israel were dispersed into Babylon, Assyria and Babylon, yes? Um, but pretty much Babylon, Babylon began to take over the entire area, so Babylon became the ruling entity. Then Greece came along, and it really took over Babylon, all right? And then Rome, true to prophecy from the book of Daniel, then Rome then went and took over Greece, all right? So the Hellenists are Greek, all right. Uh, they were probably slaves at some point under the Roman Empire. OK, um, but Greek by nature, they spoke Greek. Um, it was the Hellenist, um, uh, the parts of Alexandria that wrote the Septuagint. All right. The history of the 70 scholars that put the Septuagint together or the Bible in Greek, which is how you got this one. OK, OK, OK. So I'm just boring you half to death. I'm trying to make it exciting, but I, I can't make it any more exciting than this. It's, it is what it is. got to know a little history in order to see what's happening. Okay? Um, so, uh, so the Hellenists were complaining because they felt that their widows, because the, the children, the, the, the Christians were really taking care of the widows and the orphans, and they were saying, you know what, it seems as if the, the Greek Jew Christians are getting skipped. The widows are getting skipped for the daily distribution. Y'all done got all this stuff in here. Everybody done sold all the houses and land in order to distribute to the poor, and you're not distributing to our widows equally. It became conflict. Now, bear in mind, this is the first point of contention. 
the entire movement at this point was unified, great unity, everybody doing hard things very easily with much grace and much heart and love. I mean, people are selling stuff and freely giving and everybody is in the same spot. Everybody's equal and we're all teaching and preaching and coming back to church and going back to the temple. And oh, I mean, for, for a while, it was beautiful. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands were coming to the church daily. This thing started getting big. And at bigger, and at some point, these widows were neglected. And the, the, the disciples, the apostles at that point said, um, look now, this is my, I'm, I'm, I'm going to think what I would think they were saying. Look, I can't keep up with all of this. We, is only 12 of us, and it's tens of thousands of y'all. We can't keep up with all of this, all right? You want us to preach the gospel, then you want us to orchestrate and administer everything that's going on in some of the remotest parts of all the people and be aware of everything. I can't do all of that, okay? I can't preach the gospel. I can't spread the gospel. I can't conflict, the, you know, can't talk about the truth and, and show the scriptures and reveal it all and then also have to worry about all the details about which orphans and which widows is eating all the time. And it's just too much, okay? How about we just preach, since that's, we're the only ones that could do that, and then y'all, y'all come up with a way to make sure every need is met. The reason churches have burnout, pastors, is because you want us to preach and then be mindful of every other thing that happens in your life. I get phone calls from people because I've missed something that happened in their life and they're offended. I apologize. I'm so sorry. Number one, I have a lot going on in my life. Number two, I also have to do the one thing that no one can do for me. You can't preach to my congregation the way I preach to my congregation because they have not been given to you. You can stand in and say some words, but it's not going to have the same effect. It's just the truth. He says, well, somebody need to do some stuff because we got to do things. We got to take care of people. We got to be out in the community. We got to make sure we, we, need some, we need seven folk that can really step up and, and handle this. We call them tribe chiefs. Right? I appoint them. But do they really take on the task? Department leads. I appoint them. But they, they have to end up being reminded. I have to remind the department leads about their things. Or the office has to. It, it, does it really work? And then when something falls through, you know who everyone is thinking. Hello, somebody. So Peter says, you know what? This is what we're going to do. We're going to anoint people to handle this problem, to handle these situations in general. That's what we're going to do. We're going to anoint people, pick seven, anoint them, let them run it. We will devote our time to prayer and the word of God. Oh, what a beautiful life that would be. I just get called in on the major stuff. What's going on? What's the dispute? Handle it that way, that way, and that way. Done. Everything else is still running. That would be beautiful. Some of you try to let that be the case. You do. I don't want you to think I don't notice. You do. But it takes an anointing. And because you don't want to agree or admit that you are called to do it as of yet, you cannot operate in an anointing. You think it's a hobby. You think it's just a preference. You think it's just because it's nobody else. 
Hello, somebody. Since you haven't agreed that this is actually how God has called you to serve, then you can't be anointed to do it. So thus you operate in no grace, and a very hard thing is, seems very hard, looks very hard, and you fail at it. But if you say, this is my calling, then all of a sudden grace is given to you. Hello, somebody. To do a very hard job, very well, and then the pastor has in herself some type of feeling that, you know what, I think it's going to be all right. Such and just got it. I think they got it under control. I'm good. I can worry about something else. If your department isn't run that way, well, I feel like you got it. You need to check you. The only reason I appoint leaders is because I want to turn it over. I don't want to micromanage. I'm not into it. I like big manage. Macro, not micro. I like to see the whole big picture. And you can handle your big picture, which in comparison is small to mine. But it's big to you. Small to me, big to you. (laughs) So they appointed the seven, seven folk. Stephen was among the seven. Now, what you've got to love about this is I'm thinking so Stephen was pretty much a pastor. Because at first I thought the apostles were their pastors and then Stephen was like the elders and they just kind of did stuff like deacons and stuff. Stephen was anointed with power and performed miracles. He had words of wisdom and the power of God accompanied him. All of this to feed some widows. But it wasn't just the feeding of the widows because church isn't just about helping your community. Church also leads and structures people's individual lives. And for that, you need miracles, power, signs and wonders. Because don't nobody want to believe that you are for their life until they can see God's hand using you miraculously in their lives. Till then, you are a motivational speaker. But let one good miracle be performed through you by God to them. All right, I might. um, You might be called to lead me. I might have to trust what you're saying. So then you're just an inspirational person with a microphone. And a lot of Americans come to church for that to be inspired to live their best lives as if that it was ever a possibility. Let's move on, right? So Stephen was anointed. He had powerful signs and wonders accompanied him. He preached. He worked on what he was supposed to work on with, with the widows. Everything was wonderful, right? The church grew. Um, It grew by the thousands. Go to verse 7 of chapter 6. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Stop right there. So what had become conflict, one set of proper order, caused the church to grow even more. Have we ever wondered why when pastor comes in and rebukes the church, the visitors we get end up joining the church? Because when things are chaotic and the power of God establishes order, sheep feel safe. Because everybody can tell something is disorderly. But nobody realizes, no, but everybody secretly wants somebody to break out of the norm to handle it. To do something different. To address it. Whether in love or rebuke. To establish what should be happening that all of us could sense and feel should be happening. Yeah. 
It's the markings of a true leader. Amen? Amen. Hello. Right. So they, they established this leadership, and then uh, after this break in the, in the church, the first problem in the new church, and it was pretty much from one group of people feeling like they were being overlooked. Order was established. People's concerns were met. Power of God began to move. And then it says disciples began to join by the multitude. And not only that, but priests became obedient to the faith. Now this, before we go, is where it gets sticky. You've got priests who served in the temple now becoming Christians. Do you know what that means? That now they are in the temple with some of the highest positions as believers of Christ. They're taking lambs and going, you know what this lamb means? This was Jesus. Yeah, we all crucified him. He was a lamb laid to slaughter. Look at Isaiah, prophet. Look at prophet Isaiah. That's what we did. Look, look. Now everything they're doing is made so clear. And now people who are not priests, just lay members, come to priests, and priests end up, end up explaining the temple and the sacrifices with that of Christ. And it's like the best revival you've ever seen. And I mean, and not only now the priests that would normally hold up the Jewish standard are now Christian believers, which means the whole foundation of that temple belief is shaken. It's, it's shook. It shook big time because many priests are becoming believers. Now, come on now. Now, this, this, this got out of hand apparently for them, right? So you know what's going to happen. The Sadducees of the day, let's go on to verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose the leaders. Let's look at this, verse 9. Then, there's, then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of freed men, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, and those from Sicily and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Stop right there. These, uh, from the synagogue of freedmen, these are the Hellenists. Again. See, now we have some issues. Because the people within the movement are feeling that they weren't, their needs weren't being met. And then the people outside are now in contention with the movement. This is conflict. Now, they handle the situation on the inside, only to find out that the same Greek uh, uh, Israelites are now uh, protesting against the teachings of Christ. Now, the synagogue of freedmen, what is interesting here is they were probably Greek. The idea of freedmen is probably is under the, uh, the connotation that when Rome captured Greece, that they all became slaves. Uh, paid their due, did their time, and was released. So now they, they, they're Israelites from the diaspora that were in bondage, from the dispersion. Do you remember we talked about that, right? Where Babylon was conquered by uh, Greece, Greece was conquered by Rome. All right, so the Grecians, uh, the Hellenists, same thing, that became in bondage to Rome are now free, and Rome gives them somewhat like they do in Jerusalem, the idea that you're kind of free, but you're under our rule. You can do what you want to do within certain aspects. Right? Okay, so that's how Christ was crucified. So these freedmen from the diaspora, they come to Jerusalem. 
and they come to the temple. And coming to the temple is a big deal to them. And it's interesting because they began to fight and resist at the point that they recognize that many priests are becoming believers of Christ. Because to believe that Christ is the Messiah, then you know that this temple sacrifices are really not necessary. We do it for what it represents, but it's not necessary in order to have the favor of God, the spirit of God, or to have God with you. And this becomes problematic because these same priests are threatening the belief and the religion of the temple in itself. So if they believe in Christ, then what is the point of doing all this? And what you don't want to tell somebody is somebody who has sacrificed, bled, drove, caravaned, gave all they had to believe that something was important. And then y'all don't want to help me today. When you start feeling like you sold into something and you believed it was important and, and you went through all this to get that job and you went through all that to go to get that degree and you went through all that to do that relationship and you went through all that to go down this path and then somebody comes along and tell you, you know what, it ain't even that serious. Excuse me? I've been wanting to do this since I was a little girl. Excuse me? You don't know in my family we ain't never had. Excuse me? So now they are threatened by the idea that you're trying to undo everything that I built. Come on, y'all don't want to play fair today. Because you, you know, we have reverence for this thing. They travel far and wide on the holiest of days. To them, this is important. And now y'all trying to act like it ain't even important? They in an uproar about this. And scholars believe that Stephen was a Hellenist also. So the freedmen, Hellenists, Greek, all right, leaders of synagogues in their own countries, know that this is the Holy Land, Jerusalem. And the priests here can't fall back into believing this Jesus stuff. No. We'd uphold the culture for the culture. Uphold our Israelite beliefs and our religious systems. So we might have the favor of God. And so they fight. And they tell, convince people to lie on the apostles and say that they were blasphemous against Moses and God. So they bring them back to trial. They bring Stephen back to trial. Primarily, that's why scholars believe one of the reasons why he's a Hellenist. Stephen used to be one of us, a freedman. You should understand how this works. Yeah. You could just see the contention. Didn't those same Hebrew Christians not even feed the Greek widows? And now look at how they're looking, just tearing down things that are so a part of our culture. What I love about this particular battle is that this Grecian freedman thing is so tightly related to Freemasonry, oh, wow. to Greekdom, uh -huh. and sororities and fraternities. <laughs> that I could see how when I became a Delta and then left my sorority, because I knew it was not of God, yeah. how the same spirit of ant antagonistic spirit, yeah. and it's so angry and upset, because it looks as if I am tearing down black culture. Uh -huh. yeah. Black kids going to college. Uh -huh. that, that this is a good example for black children to go to school. And now you're going to tell them they, they can't pledge. 
And somehow I, I, I am deteriorating the fabric of African-American life because I believe that African-Americans should be Christians first and foremost, then collegiate. So vehemently they strike with death threats to me. On my car, assaults, fires, injuries for years. Because I said, no, that's not of God. This is a, this is a, a system of the world. Number one, it's Babylonian. Yeah. And it's Babylonian in true nature, the first, the secret society. And then it became Grecian. Uh-huh. <laughs> right here. You have Greek gods and goddesses right here. When people say, well, pastor, you're going to tear down all the Greek. No, I ain't got nothing to do with that no more. Listen, people do what they want to do. All right. I'm trying to get the Christians that really believe God out. But this is the nature of this. This is how it's always been. Because just as I had to do it on a collegiate level, have to do it on a real life level where Satan always wants to bind you to concepts and principles that are never for you in the first place using your desires for good things and contorting them so you want the desires for good things more than you want God himself. That's why I keep targeting that part of your heart that doesn't want to believe you'll live again. Because Satan uses that to enslave you. To serve yourself because you are feeling that God won't serve you. To protect yourself because you feel that God won't protect you. That somehow he's going to take you down a path you don't want to go and he will. But you could, you, you could choose to either fight with him or fight against him. Everything in your life is not supposed to be enjoyable. And anybody tells you that it's supposed to be is lying to you. Because every path you go down thinking that this is going to lead me to an enjoyable happily ever after never does. At least God has the wherewithal to tell you the truth. It ain't. The Bible tells you the truth. It ain't always going to be nice. I, I don't promise you everything good. When I do promise you something good, I'm promising that with persecution. What? I'll give you great things, but it's going to come at cost. Satan deceives you to make you think that this, this carrot in front of your face, this will be the answer to all your problems. If I could just, if I could only, if I could just, if I could only. And it never really is. At least the Bible says that day will never happen here. That's not going to happen here. That happens over there. Satan tricks us to believe that this is our only life. And he uses our things that we think are good for us and contorts them, distorts them to make us in bondage to those things. So now you do things impulsively. You do things habitually. And the only reason you went down that path is because you desired something that was good. Love, respect, provision, safety. But the issue is that you want those things more than you want God himself. And that disqualifies you from Christianity. So while you may profess with your mouth, you don't believe it with your heart. 
Because when we have to see when the beatings come, when the cost shows up, and you can't pay the piper, this is all talk. And you can talk with tears. You can talk with great heartache. But it's still just talk. Satan knows that you're good for that. He knows your habits, how you cry on cue, how you conjure up those feelings to feel that you, you really are sorry. You really are. You know, I tell people who are always apologizing for the same thing, stop. Just do better. Do better. And it would appear if you walked in on one of our conversations and they're just bawling their eyes out, and I am unmoved, that I am a heartless and callous individual. But all I know is you need to save all this emotion for crying and use it to do right. You're wasting time. You're going to be so emotionally spent by the time you get done crying that you won't be able to do anything that you need to do. But that's your plan. To create so much drama around what you don't want to do that you can't even imagine how you could after all of this. And most of all of this, you created. I'm preaching better than y'all acting today. It's a challenging aspect to try to teach people who, those of us that don't know how to fight. Anybody know somebody that doesn't know, know how to fight? Now, some people are taught to fight. Other people are born with that ability. Did you know that? Mm. See, I thought I wasn't born with that ability because my mama had it. My daddy had it. Them some fighters, okay? They fight. They, they fight. I was mild. I thought, turn the other cheek like Martin Luther King. My mama beat my butt because I said, I'm going to turn the other cheek. <laughs> and I just believed that you turn the other cheek. Then one day I grew up, and somebody insulted me, and I beat the snout out of her. And I didn't even know in me that I had the ability to be a fighter until it showed up. And I recognize that some of us are born with fight potential. And then some of us are not. Some of us are born with patience. Some of us a little low on that. Some of us are born with great jokes and wit. Some of us a little low on that. Do you understand? Everybody's personality pot got a different mix, all right? It is challenging because while I, to you, what I'm saying seems very normal, there are some of us who don't have fight. They have give up. And to a fighter, this seems odd. It seems as if who would even have to convince you to do this? This is, is this a real conversation? It's because you don't know the people that don't have any intrinsic fight. That all they know is when things get hard, give up on the inside. You may not see it on the outside, but the sin that shows up in their life is an indicator that they did it on the inside. Yeah. 
You're walking a good path and then something happened. Things were going good and then it was going great and then, uh huh. This this lets me know you have no fight. You thought it was how much you praise God and how much you show up at church. Uh uh. What shows me your fight is how often do I see sin rise up? Because a real believer doesn't sin because they want to. They sin because they're out of hope. They're afraid of something. Do you understand? They have to provide something for themselves or they don't trust God in a certain way. That's real believers. People that know right and don't do right. At the end of the day, it all boils down. This one right here, definitely born with a fight. Born with so much fight, it's ridiculous. The issue is that he don't know who to fight or who not to fight. So we have a hard time trying to train him, I'm not the one to fight. His mama's not the one to fight. But he got it honest, didn't he, Sheena? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He got it honest. Because sometimes, just because we can't have our way, we think that this is the individual or the entity that we're supposed to fight. Because it is causing me pain that this is the thing that I'm supposed to resist. Because it is causing me something I don't like, this is the thing I'm supposed to stop doing. That because it is difficult, I should quit. I made a bad choice, a wrong direction. That somehow this is what I'm supposed to let go of. Oh no, baby, this is the thing you're supposed to hold on to. The issue is that you have a habit resisting the Holy Spirit. You have a habit resisting the direction that God wants you to go in. So you may not say that you're actually fighting against God, but the first step to fight against God is to then start resisting him. See, I know right now this little kid right here, he knows he's supposed to be quiet. He knows that he's not supposed to be acting like this. He knows that I'm not pleased. But yet and still, he keeps doing it. He has a habit of resisting the tone that is elevated to him. He has a habit of resisting the tone that is elevated. And so he keeps habitually doing the same thing over and over and over again. If we don't break in him, the idea that there are certain tones that you hear, certain things that come from authority that you do not negate, you don't bypass that, you don't go around that, then we're going to have a problem on our hands. See, some of y'all have developed such a habit of resisting the Holy Spirit that when he does the normal things that should cause you to stop, the normal things that could cause you to back, he should be able to give you a look and you should be like, you know what, let me just stop right now. Oh no, you just bypass it all and you just keep screaming and crying and hollering and trying to get your way. See, this is him trying to get his way and you got your own methods of trying to get your way I'm gonna get my way with this skirt I'm gonna get my way with this conversation I'm gonna get my way with this I'm gonna look at a job over here uh, you find you got your own ways of trying to get your own way so then you don't ever learn you don't ever learn and who wants to sit here and do this all day who wants to sit here and deal with your stubborn personality It's, it's barely understandable for a child. It is certainly not understandable for an adult. The way we resist the leading of the Spirit of God. He tells you you shouldn't even go there. You shouldn't even say it like that. Don't even, don't even think like that. Sit on down. Or we don't do it. And it doesn't start off that we fight against God. It starts off that we simply resist. Stephen then goes on to discuss, ooh. He then goes on to discuss 
since you say that I am blasphemous against Moses and God, he gives a whole history lesson of the children of Israel. And what I can't understand is when he's brought before the council and they bring up all these false witnesses that say that he blasphemed, and they bring up false witnesses that say that he lies and, 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 he, and, he, and he does all kinds of atrocities. When they sit him before him, they say his face looked like that of an angel. Like what? It's like when they actually see you, they realize truth. Hello, somebody. Isn't it true that we can resist God all we want as long as he's distant? We could fight him. You know, the Bible says that they, they induced men to blaspheme. Like they'll have conversations go, well, what did you hear him say? Mm. Well, I mean, if that's what you kind of, if you kind of believe that stuff, then that's on you. Mm. You know, I love how Satan, because you remember I used to teach that Satan has a way of, of, of just presenting an alternative truth. Yeah. And that's all it takes for somebody who wants to persecute. Yeah. Just the alternative truth. When it comes to leadership, if anyone ever says that this person molested me, even if it's not true, you're done. You're done. It's just the idea. So they induce people with the idea. Well, what did you hear? Has anybody ever been that person? Where you started looking for people that could corroborate another perspective of the good that you see. Now, this person is doing good. It can't be. They say they mean me well, but they really don't. They say they intend good, but they really don't. Oh, anybody ever been there? I'm, anybody ever been that person? You better raise your hands because some of you have been that person that I know it personally. And do somebody to say something to give you an alternative perspective. Coerce conversations. Indulge in them. So you can see some evil that doesn't even exist in a person's heart. All because of one thing. The way you used to live is threatened. What you want is threatened. I'm preaching, Betty, y'all asking. And you'll ponder their perspective of me. You'll ponder their view of me. You'll ponder. You'll even go as far as going specifically to that person because they give you a different view. Only thing I say is check why. Why? Why now do you need an alternative view? Is it because you desire an alternative way of life? You ain't got to slander me to do it. Just go do it. And the only reason you feel like you have to slander leadership, the Stevens, is because you are afraid. You're a coward. You won't just be bold enough to do bad because you're bad. You got to make your bad look good because you're a coward. If I'm going to do wrong, I'm going to tell everybody I'm doing wrong, and I'm doing wrong. At least you're bold. But no, everybody's got to be convincing that somehow you're right. Even at the pain of making somebody else that never did anything wrong to you in that aspect wrong. I'm preaching in this house. Mm -hmm. That's what he did. So they induce people to lie. 
to bear false witness. And when these council members saw Stephen face to face, they was like, now, it looked like a really nice person. <laughs> and that's how y'all do me, huh? Oh, you will build, I'm, I'm preaching myself happy. You will build me up to be the biggest villain under your, I don't really know, but maybe they are, maybe she might be, until your family members see me face to face. They'll be like, oh, she real nice, she real nice. She real. <laughs> she not at all what I thought. I'm thinking, what did you, what, what did you think? What did they say? From you, I'm enemy number one. When I sit beside them, I don't even know why I didn't like you. You're so nice. And then we go through a period of peace, me and your other distant family member, <laughs> when they meet me for themselves. And then that peace has changed over time, based off of the comments you give. And you think I'm stupid enough to believe that, that's, that you ain't got no hand in this. There's only one of us stupid in this scenario. <laughs> and it's not me. <laughs> I know you have a hand in this. You know, you may not say anything negative about me, but you set up the situation so that negative thoughts can be implied. Or that that person feels like they have to give you wisdom. Now, somehow they're the voice of wisdom to you. All because I challenge the way that you want to live because I know that's not what God wants you to do. It ain't just one person in this house. It's multiple. It is. Hello, somebody. Somebody said to me, well, Pastor, I know, you know, <laughs> in, in essence, I don't care. I, I don't even care. Because at the end of the day, you have to still deal with the drama you create. Because when you were for the church and you for pastor leading you, now you got to deal with the conflict of your family. Now you got to have this whole conflict that you created when it's time for you to do right. Hello, somebody. The alternative, let me tell you. Let me tell you the alternative. Don't go here. Don't go here. You ain't got to have no conflict with me as your pastor and your family. If you create conflict, go with your family. If they don't trust me, don't, you don't trust me. You go with them. I could, be the, I could be a terrible situation in your life. Go with them. But what you ain't got to do is bring that conflict over here. Yeah. I'm not ripping no babies in half. They can keep you. If you can't see, parents can't see me as a help to them parenting their children, I will not become the conflict. You're safest with them because they know you better than I do. I have to get to know you. They see all your stuff. And very familiar because they part of you. They <laughs> you was foreign to me. <laughs> you was very real to them. But you ain't got to go here. It's not necessary. I may not be your pastor for you. I would hate to see you go, but I completely understand and support it. Do you understand that? You're not forced here. I set a standard that I believe God has for believers, and then I set one that I believe he has for your individual life. You submit to that by will. But you do not have the option to completely be disobedient on a persistent and consistent basis and stay in this house, because that is a cancer. 
Do you understand? If you feel like, uh-uh, I can't live like that, I understand. Go to a church that say everything you want to do is fine. I'm not trying to raise a bunch of weak Christians. I'm raising churches in a church that was for the last days. Where it's going to be easy to worship other gods. And it's going to be easy to follow after your own belly. And it's going to be easy to be deceived. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So he began to preach and teach on Abraham, on Moses, on the entire life's journey that they went through to become Israel. And it was powerful. And they listened because they had to hear the history from a Jew to a Jewish council. And Stephen knew it all too well. What I think is amazing is that Stephen, through his preaching, if you read the sixth chapter of Acts, he begins to show them consistently how the Israelites have had a pattern of resisting the Holy Spirit. He starts with Abraham. He says, now God promised Abraham a, a, a territory and a land, but he never gave it to him. He never gave Abraham not even a place to put his foot. But he promised all that land to Abraham, but never gave it to him. He promised it to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And, the, and then he says that he promised it when Abraham didn't even have no kids. Right? This is the funny thing. But Abraham in himself could not fully trust the leading of the Holy Spirit. He trusted him to lead him through lands, but didn't trust him with his personal life. He followed God on whatever land he wanted God to go, but didn't trust him when it came to his personal life and his personal livelihood. Him and Hagar had a baby. You know, that wasn't it. Was it Hagar? Yeah. That wasn't, that wasn't a shebang. Had Ishmael, right? Didn't trust God when it came to his personal stuff, his intimate choices. Didn't trust God when it came to him and his wife, whether God would keep and spare his life because his wife was so beautiful. When it came, really came down to it, Abraham trusted God in one area that God would lead him through to the lands that he needed to go to. But all the other areas, he lacked trust. This is just a fact. You can make it what you want, but you need to take it for what it is. And a lot of mistakes were made that weren't necessary, but God worked for good. It's the truth. Then he goes on to say, after Abraham... Abraham had Jacob, I mean Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob. And Jacob, he was doing good, but God told him that your brothers is going to try to, you know, usurp you. You know, you're going to be ruling over them, and it's going to be great, but they're not going to like it. Try to tell them in dreams. Eventually, this is exactly what happened. Jacob was locked in Egypt. And so Stephen begins to tell this testimony of the history of the Israelite people. And he shows that God already told Moses, you're Moses. The Moses you say I blaspheme told him that I'm going to send you somebody like me. Moses told the children of Israel, I'm going to say God is going to send the nation someone like Moses again that will deliver them and save them. Right. Deliver, save them and then rule over them and that he you should definitely listen to him. Moses said this about the Christ. 
Moses performed um, tons of miracles in the eyes of the Israelites in hopes that they would see that God is called to use him to deliver them. But they didn't see it. They saw he tried to even kill a man. Right. For, for, For abusing another Israelite hopes that they would follow him, but they didn't see it. God kept prophesying these children. They're going to go run amok. Israel is going to be, they're going to, they're going to go wayward. We're going to put them in captivity for 400 years. Then whatever nation puts them in captivity, I will judge that nation, release them. They'll come back and they'll come back to this promised land. This is what God told Moses long before Jacob even showed up. Everything, when it started happening, everything Israel could do to resist it is what they did. But God knew it. God knew what was going on in their hearts and that this was the path they were going to have to take. Is it possible that God already knew what was in you and already knew that this was the path you were going to have to take, even if it was hard? Even if it's not what you wanted, he knew this was the path you were going to have to take based off of your personality mix, how he created you. He knows your thoughts are far off. He knew it. I know you don't like it. I know you wish you could go somewhere else and do do it another way. You wish it never happened. But see, this is also you resisting what God already knows you needed. Oh, y'all don't want to help me today. He knows you needed. You couldn't have had it easy, baby. You needed it hard. You couldn't have had it that way. This is the way you needed it. Somebody else don't have to have it that way, but you do. And this is the part of you that doesn't want to admit it. That God knew what was best for me that he knew what paths my life would take. And that's the path I needed to go in. And rather than fighting against God, and that's what happens because he's placed your life in so many paths you disagree with. Then you resist him when he tugs on you. Because all you can think about, here's another path I don't want to go down. Here's another thing I don't want to do. Because you never really, like the children of Israel, came to the full recon, uh, reconciliation of the idea that I want to do what he wants to do. And the disciples dying, which later what happens to Stephen, he is murdered, all right? It's because they say, even if this is what you want from my life, this is what I'll do. That Christianity rests on the idea that believers say, even if this is what you want from my life, this is what I will do. It hinges on the idea of losing and still trusting. And most of us are so afraid of all the things that we've lost that we can't, we can't fathom losing anything else. So we hold so tightly to every little thing that we get. Don't you take this away from me, God. Don't you take this away. Don't you take this other thing. I can't. Don't, 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 don't you do this to me. Don't you do this to me. And you end up fighting him. And he's going to do it anyway. But look at where you're standing in opposition. As a leader of this house, I have to tell people, yes, what I want to do is what I'm going to do. Right? The issue is not that I'm not running this the way I think it should be run. The issue is that you stand in opposition of me rather than with me. You know how to give helpful opinions, but you don't know how to support. And I don't listen to anybody who knows how to give me an alternative way of looking at something, but is very poor at actually supporting it. I don't care if you got a great idea. I'll take my bad idea over your great idea because you show lack of support in anything that's not yours. 
So that I didn't take your idea, now it's just, oh, whatever. I didn't do, do it your way, then it's, oh, waiting for it to fail. But no, I'm not listening to your opinions. I'd rather take mine. Thanks. But you earn a spot of a trustworthy companion in building the, building, the, uh, the body of Christ when it re- and it's revealed that you support. What would you think about what pastor says you're going to do with the duck? Girl, I don't even know. I don't know about that. What? I think it's a great idea. I think we should do more of that. I think that when we decided to do that, that's exactly what God wants to do. Support. The, the issue with the freedmen is that the freedmen didn't like where the direction of, the, of, of, of God was taking his people. Yeah. You about to get rid of the temple. Uh-uh, this matters to us. For a long time, we couldn't even come over here. Now we can come over here. You can't take this from us. I finally got it. Now you can't take it from me. That's not right. And they wanted what they wanted more than they wanted God. What if there was a time that you needed to want that? And then there's a time that you need to stop. What if there's a time that it was okay for him to to, to push you in that direction? And then he says, now that's enough. Did you, did you start going to that job? Then that job is done. Did you made a friend over here? Then that friendship is done. What if, why can't that be a real thing? Why can't you trust the leading of the Holy Spirit and how he works with even you and all of your personality quirks? Hello, somebody. And all the ups and downs that your life takes you, all the failures and all the successes. And you let him use all of that. And you flow with him rather than against him. That's pretty much all I'm trying to say. Amen? Amen. So Stephen told him the idea of, of Moses. Thank you, Mama Jean. <laughs> Stephen let him know that the idea of Moses is that we've always resisted the saving hand of God. When Christ came with miracle signs and wonders, they still resist the Holy Spirit. He says, can't you see the pattern? He says, then you go from resisting him to now you crucified him. As well, what what we're trying to say today is your habit of resisting the leading of the Holy Spirit will cause you to fight against God himself. It is God that wants that for your life. It's not Satan, it's God. Satan can't bring nothing and manifest anything in your life that God does not permit. The issue is not about whether it's God's will or not. The issue is about what side of God's will are you on. The same people that accused Stephen of blasphemy then had to be the first ones to stone him. Stephen said, it's you that resisted the spirit of God. It's been you from generation to generation. And some of you are the same way, from from generation in your family to generation, always resisting the move of God. And some of y'all know it's people in your family that you have been saved from that resist the move of God. Don't act. Oh, y'all don't want to clap all day. You know them. They accept God to a certain extent. And that is it. You came from them. If anything, you should have compassion on where they stop, but that does not mean you stop there too. 
I understand where that comes from in us because I feel it. But yet and still, I press on. Stephen understood the hellenists that were rising up against him. As they stoned him to death, he cried out, Lord, forgive them. Please don't charge this to them. He understood where all of this emotion and pain was coming from, but he still had to fulfill his call. He didn't allow it to say it was okay. It's not okay, but I have to do what I'm called to do. And do I want to die? No, but if that's your plan for me, that's exactly what I'm doing. And he believed it and did it to the end. He took his last breath being stoned. When you see, the Bible says the witnesses took their garments off and laid them at the feet of Saul. This is Saul who then became Paul. Right? What he's saying is when you decide to stone someone because of blasphemy, the people that bore witness to your blasphemy have to be the first ones to stone you. That's why we saw Christ say, who will be the first to cast the first stone? What he's saying is if you bore witness to this, then you need to come and cast the first stone. And they, t- they took off their cloak, they laid it at the feet because the cloak would get in the way of stoning the stones. So they came prepared, knowing that they were lying. But the joy of throwing a stone is you don't know whose stone really killed the person. So you could say, I never intended to hurt. I never intended to kill. I never intended. All I was, I was just having a conversation. I was just talking to some friends. I was just expressing how I was feeling. And you don't know which one of all those conversations really did the damage. And you like it that way. So it really can't be completely on you. Well, I never said. That wasn't my rock that hit him in the head. No, that other rock got him burst in mine. This is what you're trying to, this is what you're trying to, that's how y'all sound to me when you try to explain to me how you didn't throw me under the bus. Oh, okay, one your rock, right? That wasn't the blow, thanks. It was, oh, it's my grief. That was it. Thanks. Even if your stone was one of many, the fact still remains you have a stone and you're fighting against God. Even if everybody says the same stuff about your church and your pastor, the fact is your words are in the mix. Your ear is a part of those listening ears. That's the problem. So people like to throw stones because nobody can really call who had the fatal blow. And as Steve was taking his last breath, He was asking God to forgive him. Because he could see how resistance turns to fighting. The first time the church had a problem was in the conflict that was arising between those who were of the Hebrew faith and those who were of the Greek who were coming in. This was just a precursor for all the Gentiles. Because the tables of how church was being done were starting to turn. There was a method in a way that worked very well for the Israelite population that was converting to uh, Christianity. But as more other cultures started coming in, the way it was happening from Greek to Gentiles, this started adding a whole other dynamic where some of the simple things that they held so dear, like the temple, were no longer of any consequence. And it made people very passionate about defending the way they do church. 
but somebody has to reveal the gospel. Peter goes on to teach. Is it Peter? Stephen. Stephen goes on to preach at this particular juncture. He says that Moses told you that God does not live or dwell in the temple. You can't build anything for God and expect him to live there. David, as he's preached, David built the temple. Asked God, I want to build a place for you. God said, okay, but Solomon's going to build it. But the place wasn't for God to dwell. The place was for God's name to dwell. If you check this, the scriptures and chronicles very clearly, it was that my name might dwell there. But God can't dwell, the Bible says. God can't dwell in anything that he made. I mean, he made by man's hands. The Bible says he can't dwell in anything that man's hands made. It says he made man where he said the earth is his throne and, and heaven is his what? Footstool. How could you create a place for him to dwell? Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. All right. How could you create a place for him to dwell? You can't. But the temple was a place for his name. To identify we belong to him. Just his name. Because he always had intentions that he will dwell in the hearts of believers. Something he created. He makes you new again. He, he gives you a new spirit. He brings you to life so he can then dwell there. But he can't dwell in what you make or what we make. So Peter says, this is not going to work. This temple is going to have to come down. And what you worried about it for? God don't really dwell there. These four walls are not that important. They're just a place for us to meet. What's important is how God is living in you. And that manifests sometimes within these four walls, standing all over the house. Woo-wee. I ain't going to lie to you guys. This was a tough message today. It was tough. It was tough. It was tough. It was tough. Maybe it'll be revealed later, uh, the impact that it had on your lives. But I feel like we have fought a, a very hard battle, and I don't know for what. Maybe as the Holy Spirit begins to move at the altars of our hearts, it will be revealed why we fought so aggressively for what seems to be, to me, a very simple word, that we have to break the habit of resisting the Spirit of God in our lives. We have to not only accept his will, but be for it. Flow with it through good times and bad times. How do you know that this bad thing is what God wanted? Because it's here. Now, how does he want you to respond now that it's here? Is how you determine whether you're flowing with him or not. Does that make sense? The altar is open if anyone needs prayer, if anyone needs to have an intimate moment with the Father. Let us pray. Father, today's message, as you have heard, was a brutal bloodbath for some reason. In the natural, I have no idea why it was so difficult spiritually. I don't know what you were saying to so many hearts that allowed uh, this type of warfare to be engaged, but I feel the angels of the Lord fighting on behalf of some souls here today. I'm not sure what they're fighting for, but I feel that your spirit has moved in such a way that it leaves my physical body depleted, and that's only you. 
I don't know what you're doing in their hearts, but we, we come before you right now. Hearts open. Hearts open to receive your spirit. Teach us not to strive against you. Teach us not to push back and tug and pull back from the directions that you will have our lives to go in. Throughout our days, reveal to us what it means. Yea, though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Teach us how to walk with grace. How to live a difficult life with grace. How to surrender our one life to you that we might live for an eternity. Teach us how to fight off Satan from our minds, from giving us fear and anxiety. Teach us how to be unified as a body of believers, especially locally. Teach us how to care for one another. To the leaders of the house, teach us how to be better leaders, how to lead, how to serve, how to serve you and how to serve others in getting to you. We give you glory and honor, Father, for all that you are doing. We thank you for the move that is happening in the body of Christ in America, one that is not based off of success and financial success and secularism, but one that is based off of fortitude and tenacity and the things of God. We thank you, God, that we're not the only church that's preaching a solid gospel, God, but there are hundreds of thousands of churches all across the U.S., that are raising up new, fired-up young generations, God, that will serve you, that will serve you diligently and faithfully. We've come to the end of our resisting. It is becoming more apparent with each passing week that the things I say that I really want, there's only one way to get there, and that's through you. Teach me to stop veering off. Teach me to stop expecting that it can come another way. You are the only way, the truth, and the life. Help me to take courage when things get difficult. Help me to have courage when things get hard. When I get nervous or anxious or worried, help me to be courageous. To believe in spite of what I see. To trust you and to know your heart. Continue to lead me throughout this week until we meet again on Wednesday night. Grow us. Open our mouths that we might share your grace and love to other people. Continue to use us to invite people to come to church because people need you. <laughs> they really do. And in any way that I have not been the example of who you really are, I repent now, God, and I want to do better this upcoming week in the name of Jesus. I want to focus more on you and the things that you have me to see and not so much on myself. It's in Christ's name we pray. Every saint that agreed said amen.